0: Now, we already uh, read the passage that I'll be in this morning, and I honestly think that this is, since this is the last Sunday before Christmas Day, which is incredible, isn't it, that Christmas is on Friday? feels like, where'd all the time go? Um, Surely that this particular passage will be expounded in in many pulpits uh, around the whole country, maybe around the world, uh, and yet we're in familiar territory, and though we're in familiar territory, my prayer is that the wonder and the excitement And the awe and the amazement of the events that take place here in Luke 2 really grip our hearts in a brand new way as we look at the shepherds in the field here that first Christmas morning. Now, as we work through this, obviously we're not going to be able to look at everything, and I'll try to make it as simple as I can. And I just want you to notice four things to remember. Uh, First, I want you to notice that the birth of Christ was a historic event. Secondly, we'll look at the birth of Christ as a prophetic event. Then we'll see it as a um, humble event. And then finally, we'll spend most of our time on the fact that the birth of Christ was a heavenly event. So we'll keep those four things in our minds, that it's historic, it's prophetic, it's humble, and it's heavenly. And then we'll lead into that heavenly chorus. So one of the first things you notice is that it's a historic event because Luke wants to be sure that we understand that this particular birth happened at a particular time. Remember we said before that earlier on in Luke chapter 1 that that Luke made a point to say that he was going to write a a story and an accurate account of all the things that took place in regards to the life of Christ. And setting it in a historical context would be important to that. We know that Caesar Augustus was a factual person, a historical person in Rome. We know that Corinius also was a governor in Syria. And it wasn't unusual during this time period for uh, governments to take a census or to number the people from time to time. Here in the United States, all of you know, I'm sure, I hope you do, that by now anyway have filled out your census forms. uh, We take a census every 10 years. According to some historians, The Roman culture in Rome, they took a census about every 14 years. Uh, In fact, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 5, verse 37, there's another reference to a census. And really, it almost shows us that during this time period, you have historical marking points that are related to the various census that have took place. One of the reasons why that we take a census in our country is to have fair representation in Congress so that when states rise in population or become lower in population uh, then their representation changes. We understand that. In first century Rome, however, the, there was many reasons for the census, but probably the most importantly would be two. One is it allowed Caesar to know how many people that he had to tax and so he could get more money in the coffers. And then secondly, he also would be aware of any young men that were eligible to be in the armed forces and they would literally be drafted in. So in this day, they're looking for more money and more men in order to fight their battles. A census in this day was not optional. Notice in verse 1, it's a, it was a decree. This is not a suggestion. It was a command from the government that needed to be followed. And not without great inconvenience, however. Apparently, it didn't matter what you had going on at home. It didn't matter how this fit into your life, it didn't matter uh, what was going on in your business. Registering for the census was for everyone who lived under Roman rule, under Roman law, at that time period, it would be included everyone in the known world, and that's why Luke says in verse 1 that the whole world should be registered. Again, there's no exceptions, because surely if there had been an exception, we'd have to include Mary in the exception. Uh, Anyone else in her condition, I'm certain she wasn't the only pregnant girl who had to travel back to her hometown during this particular census. You see, this isn't a decree that you go to the local post office and you fill out some forms and tell them how many are in your household, one, two, or three, and then go back home or go back to work. No, this decree, you're commanded to go back to your hometown, go back to either where you're originally born or even where your ancestry's from. Um, I can't imagine what that would mean to us. Uh, For me, obviously, it would be going back to the great city and state of California. I don't know if anyone else would join me in that, but you'd be welcome to come, because I know you'd rather have been born there, too. Um, Some of you would stay here. Wouldn't be a real big problem. But others of you would be similar to my circumstances, where you would have to leave, and the consequences for disobeying this direct command from Caesar, obviously there would be some. So what does this mean for Mary and Joseph? Well, Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, 70 miles from Bethlehem. She's a young lady. She's about eight months pregnant. A bit of a bumpy ride by donkey or walking, a long ride. But in our case, what this does, it it frames the event in the first century and simply reminds us that it's factual and it is, in fact, historical. But we can't miss the fact that along with being historical, this is also a prophetic event. Most of you are familiar that hundreds of years prior to this event, before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah declared in Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That particular prophecy was obviously something that was very well known among the scribes and the Pharisees in the first century because when the Magi came seeking Christ, after they left Herod, Herod asked the religious leaders, um, where is the Christ going to be born? And this is the text they quoted from. This is why Herod killed all the Bethlehem babies that were two and under, so that he would have no rivals, no would-be kings at all. They knew, and the scripture declared, that the Christ would be a descendant of David. So if Jesus was born in any city except Bethlehem, he could have no claim to be ruler, no claim to be king, no claim to be Savior, and quite honestly, God's word would have been proven false. And it was the decree of Caesar to have a census that God used to fulfill this particular prophecy. Now, I don't think that Mary and Joseph had any idea that God was working through the census, that God was moving in the minds of those who were requiring it. And yet every step along that 70-mile journey to the city of David was a step fulfilling this particular word of God. Behind the scenes, God's providence and his sovereignty was working right on time as it always is because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. And whoever made the final decision to have the census taken at this exact time, on these exact days, at these final weeks of Mary's pregnancy, was doing it because of God's divine direction, whether they knew it or not. The, the birth of Christ is a sovereign, providential, and prophetic event. Which brings us to the third aspect of this event. It was historical. Uh, the birthplace was prophetic. But along with that, we can't get away from the fact that it was a humble event. This is one of those times in a biblical narrative where it's not hard to think through what's going on and then know that you can be reasonably accurate, even though the text may not say it specifically. We know that a 70-mile journey walking through the terrain they had to walk through uh, would be exhausting for anyone, let alone somebody who is about eight months pregnant. So even if you traveled seven miles a day, that would take at least 10 days, camping outside and so on. Uh, We also can assume the small city of Bethlehem was in total chaos because of the census and all of the travelers that had to come and descend upon the city to be numbered. Small towns just don't have the infrastructure to allow hundreds and thousands of people to just show up for a week or two. You know, in our day, when there's major cities that want to have the Super Bowl or the Olympics, those are the questions they're asked on the questionnaire of whether they can host that many people to come. Are there enough hotels? Are there enough restaurants? Is there is there the emergency vehicles and the infrastructure and the hospitals? Can you handle this many more people? You don't want someone at the Super Bowl having to sleep in their car because they can't find a hotel unless they go to another state. And let me say, too, that the inn was was... More than likely, not like one of the old westerns in, that you and I are familiar with, with, uh, with uh, baths and balconies and continental breakfasts and so on. Uh, it's likely that it was sheltered from the elements, protected from thieves and robbers, and a few square feet of personal space, but certainly not what, what we're used to. However, much better than the alternative because the alternative was where Mary and Joseph ended up. As much as the inn is not what you and I might be used to in our mind's eye, the place that Mary gave birth was not a cozy red barn with clean animals and clean hay uh, like you'd see in a lot of the barns around us. Didn't have just a nice roof and warm and cozy. The conditions from our clean, sanitized, 21st century perspective would be absolutely horrific. There's every indication historians would tell us that maybe that Mary gave birth outside, unprotected, not cozy, not warm, and certainly not clean. I think it's safe to say that from the text that, that Mary and Joseph were probably on the lowest rung of the, of, the st- of the ladder of social status because of the scandal of Mary's pregnancy before their wedding date, It's very likely that they were ostracized by their families. Uh, They wouldn't be the only family members from both of their clans traveling down to Bethlehem, but they surely would have cousins. They would have aunts and uncles. But the whole text communicates that the entire experience, they were alone. Along with that, we know they were poor, because after the 40-day purification period, when they came to offer a sacrifice um, in in the temple, Uh, A poor family is able to offer birds instead of a lamb, and they chose to offer birds, so we know that they're poor. And this text, I think, also confirms that along with their poverty, uh, they're just nobodies. No social status, no means, no connections, uh, no prominence, and no money. Because if they had money, if they had power, if they had notoriety, if they had means, if they had connections somebody would have found him a room. People with resources, people with connections, people who know people don't sleep with animals. And their wives don't deliver babies with animals around them. I mean, from a worldly perspective, I think Mary and Joseph were about as insignificant as they come. I think the narrative, without coming out saying it too, would show the utter spiritual darkness of the people and the nation at this time period. It'd be hard to convince me that others there in the inn weren't aware there's a young lady forced to deliver a baby and sleep outside the inn, and yet nobody willing to give up their spot. If you ever had a chance to travel in larger cities by bus, occasionally you'll see an older man or an older woman just hanging on for dear life to the top of the, of the rail of the bus as they swagger along, and younger people sitting in their seat, try not to even look at them because they're not going to give up their seat for anyone, especially that old lady or that old man. I think 1st century life and 21st century life are continuing to be identical, dark, and spiritually dead. See, Matthew confirms the darkness, and so does Luke when they quote from Isaiah, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. The nation had gone through the 400 silent years when there was no prophetic voice from God since the last prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. The religious system was completely corrupt. The leaders were corrupt. The people were oppressed. The times were dark. The people self-absorbed evidenced by a completely uncaring, apathetic attitude toward those who are truly in need. So Mary gives birth. Now, there's no references to animals in our text, uh, but the manger that Jesus was laid in was, in fact, a feeding trough for animals. So the assumption would be that animals were there, and that's where we get most of the nativity scenes that that we have. In fact, the manger is so significant, it's so out of place, it's so unusual, and so disgusting to think of putting a baby in there. This is the main sign that the angel told the shepherds to look for when they finally made it to Bethlehem. Look at that in verse 12. The angel tells the shepherds, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Well, okay, you're, you're gonna run to Bethlehem you're going to see a Savior who's Christ the Lord. And you're. how do you know that you found the right person? Well, look for a baby. Well, okay, I, I got that. Several babies may be born that night in Bethlehem. Well, how do we find the right one? The right one will be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay, most of the babies, all the babies in Bethlehem were wrapped in swaddling clothes. You ever go to the hospital and you're looking for one of your friend's babies in the hospital and all you see in that... In that room there is a bunch of pink and blue hats or pink and blue blankets. You have no idea which one's which. You need some, some way to identify one, uh, usually in our case by, by their name. And in the case of the birth of Jesus, the angel adds, lying in a manger. Ah, now we're talking. That would identify the one who is born. That would identify this one who's Jesus. That would identify the one I'm looking for. Because babies don't go in mangers. I mean, Rick made it clear to us a couple weeks ago what happens in his animal feeding trough and the manger in their barn. What's in a manger? Well, animal food and hay and corn and wheat and barley and spit and snot and whatever else comes up out of the stomach of an animal. That's what goes in the manger. The manger in the feeding trough was the only thing around that would elevate the newborn baby, keep him off the ground and keep him safe from being cold or stepped on and Jesus was born in circumstances that were just beyond humble. It's a historic event. It's a prophetic event. It's a humble event. But most importantly, it's a heavenly event. There, there's, just, there's just no way that we can recreate what took place in those fields outside Bethlehem. It doesn't matter what kind of technology or Anybody can come up with cameras and lights and special effects and so on. Any attempt to visually recreate what took place on this old holy night would be absolutely futile. The night Jesus was born was the greatest night in human history. And the reason why I say that is because this is the only time in human history where an entire host of angels a throng of angels, an army of angels. The text would mean rows and rows and rows and rows of angels. The only time in human history when they openly praise God in unison for earthly creatures to hear them. I have to say that again. This is the only time in human history when when a throng of angels, an army of angels, rows and rows and rows of angels broke out in spontaneous praise to the glory of God so that creatures on earth could hear them give praise, and it's all because a baby was born and laid in a manger. And the reason for this chorus of praise was because angels live in the presence of God, and they know things that we don't know. We see in a mere dimly, but they fully knew what this meant when they broke out in spontaneous praise. We know the praise was spontaneous because in verse 13 has the word suddenly. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly, unexpectedly, Without rehearsal, it's the same word that'll be used for the unexpected return of Christ when His second coming comes upon us suddenly. I mean, suddenly, out of nowhere, there's this explosion of sudden, unexpected worship and praise for the greatest event in human history. I mean, Christmas, the birth of Christ, is the only time in the history of humanity when there was a true, angelic, hallelujah chorus. Let's discover why, and let's start with the shepherds. They they had quite a night, didn't they? You could read books about first century shepherds in Palestine. They typically live with the sheep. The sheep are not penned up. They graze, and so they're with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The event took took place so close to Jerusalem that some have speculated that it's likely that these particular shepherds may have been overseeing the sheep that would have been used in the ceremonial sacrifices, but we can't confirm that. Those sheep were vital to the sacrificial system, and they're vital to the ceremonial system, and they're vital to the nation and the economy. Shepherds were considered scoundrels, thieves, nomads, and they were at the bottom rung of society's caste system. They would have been included in the gospels in the list of sinners and tax collectors. Their testimony was not allowed in court. They were not included in any of the sacrifices or the ceremonial services because they were unable, they were unable to keep the, the, the laws of ceremonial un- of cleanness that the Pharisees had laid down for them. They weren't biblical, but because they couldn't keep all the rigors of that, they wouldn't allow them to participate in the religious services. So the leaders would consider them unclean and they would be ostracized from everything religious. And God selecting them to be the eyewitness of the most miraculous heavenly event in human history continues to put on display that His grace and His mercy are for the humble, and the contrite, and the lowly. We're always going back to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, aren't we? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were very powerful, not many noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are The proclamation of his birth was not to kings and noblemen and chief priests and scribes or any one of significance or importance. Just simple shepherds in a field doing their normal routine. But this particular night was anything but normal. You see, prior to witnessing the army of angels, the shepherds saw two other unique unexpected heavenly things. One... The glory of God shone around them, and two, an angel showed up with a particular message. Now, God's glory symbolizes his presence. And there are a number of references in the Old Testament to this. I just want us to look at one in Exodus chapter 40, and you could turn there. His glory first appeared in a cloud form when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. In Exodus 40, in this particular chapter, it declares what took place after the tabernacle was constructed and ready to be put into use. At this point, the children of Israel had already crossed the Red Sea. they have been delivered from Egypt. They began grumbling in the wilderness, and they're going to be in the wilderness now for the next 40 years. But God has not forgotten them. He's still with them as demonstrated By his glory, filling this new constructed tabernacle in in Exodus 40. And I'll read from verse 34. I did say Exodus, didn't I? Good. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. I won't take any more time to look at other references of God's glory being among the people. But understand that His glory symbolized and pointed to His presence. His glory meant that God was among the people. And the fact that the shepherds were filled with great fear was totally normal and expected. I think the King James uses the phrase, they were sore afraid. I like that even better. We've said all this for the last several sermons about these angelic visits. Whenever anyone sees an angel, they're filled with fear. And if indeed... And it was that God's glory, when it's manifested at night, is usually by fire. It's a good thing the angels encouraged them to not fear, because they were scared out of their wits, by the presence of an angel and by the symbolic presence of God Almighty. And now notice the proclamation back to to Luke chapter 2. Now notice the proclamation as we first looked at his, His glory. Luke 2, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The glory of the Lord is shining around them, is symbolizing God's presence. And the proclamation by the angel is the announcement of God's presence. God's glory, in a sense, is now in the animal feeding trough. And we know this by the titles given in his announcement in verse 11. Look at his titles. The city of David is a a reference to Jesus being king on an eternal throne. As Savior, He is the only one who can save man from His lost condition. As Christ, He's been the one promised throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah they're waiting for. And as Lord, He is clearly and absolutely and fully and completely God. The word Lord here is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for God. You see, not only had the glory of the Lord shown around Him, them, now on this day, the Lord of glory humbled himself and came to earth. God's glory, God's presence, God himself had come to earth. And the shepherds left their flocks to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is what the the apostle John is referring to in John 1 when he proclaims to us that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. See, instead of the glory of the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle, now we have the Lord of glory dwelling, living, and tabernacling among the people. And this is why the heavenly hosts, this angelic army, meets up with the angel who made the announcement, and they praise God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, among whom he's pleased. My... My language, my words cannot do justice to what's taking place here and what's being proclaimed. So I just pray the Spirit of God gives us understanding to fully grasp this. Glory to God in the highest is simply giving the most possible glory, the most possible praise that there ever is or can be or will be to God Almighty. And the glory to God in the highest is all wrapped up in the next phrase. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And all of this is on account of the baby born laying in the manger, who is an eternal king, who, who is a savior who will die, who is the Christ who is promised, and who is God covered in human skin. You see, the angels live in God's presence. Angels know God. Angels know His glory. The angels know His majesty. And the angels are watching. And the angels are looking. And the angels are seeing. They're seeing the Lord God Almighty condescend Himself and come to the earth he created in the same manner that a normal human being would. How can you create an example that would, that would be worthy? Well, it's like you and I becoming ants. That's a pretty big contrast. But it's not even close to God becoming man. Any attempt at an illustration is just futile because along with knowing God, the angels also know sinful man because they're created beings, but they're eternal beings. And they've been watching God display his grace and his mercy on mankind ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. See, they've been in his presence as his servants, as his messengers for all of human history. And they've seen God's deliverance at the Passover. They've seen his deliverance at the Red Sea. And then they saw the grumbling of Israel and the wandering in the wilderness. They were there during the conquest of Joshua and conquering the land. But they're also there during the complete chaos and disobedience through the time of the judges. They're there when David reigns as king and then the fall afterward from Solomon to Rehoboam to all the rest. They've seen all the ups and downs Of the Jewish empire. And over the centuries. They've seen man's rebellion. They've seen man's hatred of God. They've seen man's refusal to obey. His refusal to bow. His desire to go his own way. And do his own thing. And and they've seen the absolute chaos. That has been in a world. Cursed by sin. Because of what happened in the garden. And has been imputed to all of us. They also know that many of their counterparts, other angels, when they rebelled against God, had no hope of any return to him and will eventually be thrown in the lake of fire. And on this, oh, holy night, they're fully aware that God, in all of his glory, is in that animal feeding trough for the sole purpose of saving and redeeming and purchasing through eventually suffering and dying for men and women who by their very nature hate him. And when these angels witness the God they worship, the God they praise, the God they serve, in that feeding trough who came to save his people from sin, they can do nothing but stand up and come out in spontaneous praise to him. You see, they know the baby in the manger is the only answer to peace on earth. I mean, can we just even pause for a moment and think of the events that have taken place in our lives over the last year? What a year. COVID, racial unrest, a political divide, massive shutdowns, contested election, states want to secede, talk of civil war. There's war and there's conflict and there's strife and faction All over the world in every century in in, in all of history. So this is really isn't new. There isn't any peace in any sort whatsoever, and whenever peace comes, it's always short and fleeting. The heavenly hosts are saying, The baby in the manger is here to bring peace. But strife just isn't out there, though, is it, right? It's it's in our families. It's in our marriages, sometimes it's between husbands and wives and siblings, parents and cousins. How many of us have family relationships between close and extended family that are totally peaceful? No conflict, no strife, no cross words. Everybody comes to the family reunions and there's perfect harmony and perfect unity and there's perfect peace. Let me tell you about some of my family reunions uh, in another day. Our family used to fight with the other family during the wedding ceremony, uh, during the wedding reception. There are some families who have two family reunions so that the, two, the groups that are fighting won't be able to see each other. So you have to have two for the Joneses or the Smiths or whoever. But what about other situations that we encounter? Whether it's at work or church or in our neighborhood or at the store or when you drive your car. What about your soul? Do you have an inner tranquility? Do you you have a life free from anxiety, free from stress, and free from guilt, and free from a past, and free from regret? Do you live in peace, and are you at peace? The baby will bring peace. Remember the title in Isaiah 9, he's the prince of peace. You see, these angels knew that the only solution to the problems on earth, and the only way for true and lasting peace is all wrapped up in that baby in the manger. He is the good news of great joy for all the people who is born king, who is born savior, who is born Christ, and who is born God. And he alone brings eternal, lasting peace to a world that has no peace. There's an Advent book I I have that has a story in it called The Miracle on the Western Front. Some of you historians may be aware that in 1914, During World War I, this is a documented Christmas Eve ceasefire. During the ceasefire, soldiers came out of their foxholes and began to interact with the opposite side. They smoked cigarettes together. They played soccer together. And some of the reports say they sang Christmas carols together. But the next day, they're back in their foxholes Weapons in hand, attempting to kill those who the day before they were at peace with. Well, peace for 24 hours is not peace. The declaration of peace on earth by the heavenly host or the angelic horse is a permanent peace, a lasting peace, an eternal peace. First with God, then it translates into having peace with one another. But it's not universal peace. It seems to be a selective peace. It's peace on earth that only comes to those whom God is pleased. Well, with whom are the ones that God is pleased? He's pleased with those who love his son. He's pleased with those who worship his son. He's pleased with those who adore his son. He's pleased with those who put their faith and trust in his son. He's pleased with those who walk in obedience to his son. Psalm 2 commands us to kiss the Son. Lest God be angry with you and you perish in the way. Kind of has a John 3, 16 ring to it. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He's pleased with those who believe in and who bow before His Son in humble repentance for their sin, trusting in His life and death and resurrection as the only hope for salvation the only hope for restoration, and the only hope for reconciliation. According to Hebrews 12, he's pleased with those who have faith in the promise of his son. I've been saying throughout this series that we cannot worship the baby in the manger unless we finish the story with the Savior on the cross. Our peace with God comes through the baby growing up and living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death. As a substitutionary atonement for sin. And peace comes through admitting that we're sinners and believing that Christ is the only Savior th- for the sin that we're admitting to. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life and everlasting peace with God. You know, John 14 declares Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Beloved, there is no peace in this world. And I think more than anything else throughout 2020, this has become more acute, I think, than ever. If anyone's looking for peace in the world or what the world offers, During a pandemic and shutdowns, political unrest and infighting, they'll never find it. Hallmark movies, which I do watch, I don't have to turn in my man card. I'm 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 fully aware that uh, um, what that means. But we watch a lot of Hallmark movies this time of year, and each movie makes some declaration. When it comes to Christmas, nearly every movie there's a statement that the true meaning of Christmas is family, community, and service to others, then you have to add ice skating and hot chocolate because every movie has ice skating and hot chocolate to make it that much more wonderful. When you think of 2020 Christmas season for most Americans, you'd have to say, if that's the meaning of Christmas, then you are in big trouble because the pandemic has kept families from gathering. We have not been able to do what we normally do as a community. Who wants to ice skate with a mask on? You can't get hot chocolate because the restaurants are closed. If these fleeting things are the meaning of Christmas, what do you have? We've got nothing. In this world, we've got nothing No peace, no joy, no satisfaction, no hope, and no salvation. Yet, if you understand and if you believe that Christmas is is about the birth of a glorious eternal king, is about a savior who died for you, is about a Messiah to believe and trust in, and a God who would save you from sin and his wrath and his judgment. If you understand that, and if you believe that, if you trust the baby in the manger who's a savior on the cross, then you do have everything because you have peace with God. I put that little slogan in your bulletin. You may have seen it before. Know Christ, K-N-O-W. If you know Christ, K-N-O-W, you'll know peace. You know Christ, you know peace. Know Christ, and N-O Christ, means N-O peace. That's basically what the scripture is saying, isn't it? Know Christ, you'll have peace. If you don't know Christ, you'll have no peace. I pray that these last few days before Christmas Day, though there's probably nothing normal about your annual holiday traditions and routine, that you will, you will have the eternal peace that comes from Christ alone. And as we draw to a close here, we're going to be singing a song that is a manger to the cross song. The hymn writers write, Jesus is the fullness of God as a helpless babe. He's a gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Let's be reminded that our peace comes from only one source, and that is Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray.